Welcome to episode 50 of the Hail Mary podcast. I'm Atoves, and I'm joined by my husband, the Toves. We're back to review UTSA's heartbreaking loss in the Cure Bowl against Troy. Let's get started. Well, the streak continues, just not the streak we wanted. We're now 0-4 in bowl games. The game started out as a defensive battle as both teams' offense struggled to effectively move the ball. The Roadrunners got on board first when a missed time snap by Troy resulted in a safety. The Roadrunners added a field goal and a touchdown reception by Zachary Franklin in the second quarter to go up 12-0, but would never score again. Penalties, turnovers, and a lack of execution in the red zone were, unfortunately, the story of the game. But even so, the Roadrunners had the opportunity to come back and score late in the fourth quarter, like we've seen them do before, but this time, they just couldn't get it done. Despite the loss, UTSA finished the season with a second-best record in program history at 11-3. Before we get into our thoughts on the game, let's just talk a little bit about Orlando and the bowl environment. Yeah, so um, we went ahead to a little Merry Christmas to ourselves and went for the whole club package, and we yeah. talked to our friend Lopez, who was traveling with us, to uh, do the same thing. Um, really great because pre-game, you know, you got to go up to the club level. We got to see kind of the entire stadium and I get the criticism about, oh, we're in a soccer stadium again. You know, here we, you know, here we go again, right? But there was really no bad seat in the house. No. And then that, that pregame club area, um, just a lot of cool things about it. You know, there was certainly, you know, I, well, I mean, the all-you-can-drink, essentially, yeah, look, <laughs> was great. <laughs> the uh, doubles of wine were much needed during this game. Yeah, and uh, that wasn't me getting those. That was uh, Ato's square uh, uh, putting the bullseye on those. Um, yeah, and I mean, obviously the food was not stadium food, but it was good. Um, but, you know, I think the environment was pretty good, I think, leading up to it. And it just reminds you sort of the old days of the kind of pregame Alamo Dome type club access that you'd get, you know, where you know, you'd see some of the familiar faces and, you know, just kind of like grab something to eat and then like get on the field or something in this case you didn't get on the field but you were at the club level and it was up high enough to where you can really see the entire field and you mm-hmm. can see all the guys both teams kind of warming up getting things going uh, so just overall I, I thought in terms of just at the bowl game just a really cool experience yeah and as much as there was complaints about the date for the bowl game the fact that it was in Orlando and you couldn't, or it was harder to drive to, there was actually a very decent amount of people that traveled, a lot more really than what I expected. I mean, of course, you saw kind of the same diehards that you see yeah, every time right. you go to an you know out of town game, but I mean, there were a lot of people there, and you know, I know on the rewatch, it sounded really loud on television, and I think part of that was maybe where the cameras were located. I think they were closer to Sosa because Sosa yeah. was pretty loud. But still, I mean, I I felt like it was a pretty good environment and it felt in a lot of ways like a home environment because the UTSA fans are very loud and very passionate, especially the ones that travel to, you know, the out-of-town games. One thing to note is we were like on the 50-yard line, so we were kind of low to the field. So, I mean, you could make an argument that especially being front front row was mm-hmm. not good. We actually moved up to the very top of the, our section, which is only like three or four rows up. And 
we could certainly see, and that's kind of like where I think you had talked about you and Lopez, and Lopez actually had the best viewpoint of it because he knows exactly he he actually sits front row in, in the Alamo Dome. Dome, so he's like, I think this is about where we're at. But you know, more than that, I, I think there was certainly there was certainly some people that were sitting in our section and in other sections that weren't either Troy fans or weren't weren't UTSA fans. They were yeah. just there for a game. And they were just surprised at how much the UTSA fans were getting raucous, I guess. Yeah. Not just the cheering and getting up. Like, that wasn't that. It was when they started screaming at the refs and stuff like that. They were like, oh. Because there was some, like, stadium workers that sat next to me all of a sudden when mm-hmm. we got back to our seats. And I could hear them saying over and over, man, I'm not going to mess with that lady. That lady looks like she's crazy and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and they were just like, they were really going off on that. Our fans were very involved. Yes. As always. And, you know, that, that's, I, I think it just speaks to why why Trailer and the team really feeds off that, that energy. And, yeah. and I think that really helped them at times. So just overall, that was really cool. I think, you know, when we start talking about just Orlando in general, you talked about the fact that, um, there were certainly a lot of families, and we got to see a lot of them as we left Orlando. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there surprisingly seemed to be a lot of families that took their kids out of school and just kind of made a long weekend of it, went to, you know, one or more of the theme parks. I mean, there was one family on our flight that was just carrying, obviously, a bunch of toys that they had bought um, and over the weekend. Um but I mean, overall, downtown Orlando, I thought was nicer than what I was expecting. It was walkable. There were lots of bars and restaurants to go to. It was more attractive than kind of what I had pictured in my mind. I've been to Orlando before, but only at the airport. I've never actually left the airport, so I'll just say that. You know, and then again, you've got a lot of attractions. When you got to the, you know, the theme parks like Universal Studios where the uh, school was staying, you know, it definitely created a different sort of destination environment that I think Trailer was really looking forward to to try to get everyone, you know, focused on wanting to go to the bowl game, wanting to be a part of that bowl experience, um, and, you know, avoiding kind of the issues with all of the academics and grades and so forth that they had last year. We certainly didn't, like many other families, we went to Universal Studios, got to do a lot of the Harry Potter experience. Um, we Completely got nerded beer. out. Yeah, it was fine. <laughs> Loved the butterbeer. Um, and then Atos really wanted to go to Toontown, uh, which was cool because then we decided to do one of the rides that was elevated, uh, which is more of a kid's ride, but we were like, eh, I mean, who cares? Like, you know, we're just having fun here at Universal Studios. It was all fun and games up until we got on the ride, and then there was these weird, like, little humps where you're sitting down. It's just like, a, which is an awkward way to sit, and we it, both just It really just was not issues. designed for uh, adults, <laughs> let's just put it that way. We, we were literally on a kid's ride, but It was fine. fun. It was fun, though. Um, and I think it just, I, I went there, like, 31 years ago, and I can say it to that date. It's been that long since I've been to Orlando. I went to more of Disney World, Disneyland. So to be able to go to Universal Studios and do something different was really cool. Um, and I, you know, that's what the bowl experience is supposed to be. It's kind of right. You know, go to these locations that you might not go to on a normal basis. Get to experience something you know different, like Albuquerque, you know, Orlando, some of these other cities. 
other than Dallas-Fort Worth that most of us who live in San Antonio <laughs> probably been to very, very often. You know, ironically, we ended up at a Troy hotel. Um, it seemed like most of the people in the hotel were Troy fans or parents of Troy athletes. Um, so we got to uh, meet Gunnar Watson's dad after the game. He uh, made a point to come by and say hello to the sad-looking UTSA fans that were sitting there. <laughs> Did a little strutting. I uh, was a little cocky. Yeah. I mean, uh, you can't blame him. I mean, dude, I'll say this. Yes, Gunnar Watson, we'll talk about him a little bit later, made some, made a couple of throws. But that's about it. Because, uh, you know, I didn't think he was... he. He's not really the center of the team and not the best player definitely on that team. And... But, you know, looking at his dad, and I get it, you're, you're a proud dad, whatever about it, but it was like, if it wasn't for your defense, there's no way that Gunner is able to outgun, and I'm not trying to make a pun here, Frank Harris, so let's, no. let's not get past, let's not get past what got you to where, it got, where you guys were. But, you know, other than that, I mean, it, it was, I think everything was cool. It was, like you said, it was what the Bulls, Bull experience is supposed to be about, going to a destination and getting a chance to look, go around town and be able to see a few different things that... You normally wouldn't. Um, I don't think the two of us would ever just think Orlando's a destination for us. Yeah, probably not. We're really more of a, hey, we want to go outside the country. So. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing that was nice was the after party that the UTSA Alumni Association held. Um, you got to, you know, get to see, again, some fans, hang out, have some free drinks, and lament the loss. Yeah, it was totally fun. You know, we actually met up with somebody we know, Rob, and, you know, um, had some fun just talking about the game and then really just just talking. And then, yeah. you know, just really getting to bond a little bit more. And I think that was, you know, to your point, it, it was just fun to be able to notice some other people, um, other fans that we've seen before, talk, never had a chance to talk to, um, and really maybe establish future friendships. Who knows? But I guess we should get to... Talking <laughs> about the game? Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah. Um, look, I, it, it was a great effort by the team. I, I'm, I'm not going to put anything else past that. They they certainly did their best. Um, I, I'm just disappointed that, A, it was Friday afternoon and more of the country didn't get to see two really good teams go at each other. Um, but, two, just, just not send out Maka and Brady two seniors that have meant so much to UTSA. And that's not to diminish any of the other seniors like Deidre and Taylor, Taylor or these other guys, but sending all of those guys out with the win mm-hmm. would have been the perfect, I think, cherry on top. Right. And it certainly seemed like we were much more dialed into this bowl experience. Um, but unfortunately, I felt like there was just kind of this culmination of things that had happened over the season from, you know, injury after injury, having, you know, the next man up and the next man up and the next man up. And in this case, you know, you had Chris Carpenter starting for Josh Cephas, who now we know why he wasn't at the game and we'll get into that later. But, you know, you had this next man up and he had a pretty good game. I mean, obviously he made some mistakes. We had a new play caller in Justin Burke, and that's always challenging to bring in, you know, to make a change for play caller, particularly this late in the season. We saw uncharacteristic mistakes from 
Frank from receivers, you know, penalties that we hadn't seen in a long time, you know, people just kind of losing their cool. And it just seemed like it all kind of caught up with them. Yeah. And, and certainly there's, you know, a lot you can talk about and just dig in deep, but I mean, let's just think about this real quick in terms of the last three bowls with trailer 2020 were out trailer just, just, (laughs) just overall because he's got COVID We've also got a few other, you know, coaches that were out. So it was like a limited coaching staff and playing a, you know, a, a good ranked team in Louisiana. And then last season, it's going to be remembered for the first championship, the first conference championship, but then all the opt-outs, you know, going into that game. Right. And then and all, all of a sudden, we're shorthanded again, right? Right. And, you know, how many people, we don't know exactly how many of them were impacted by grades, but it seemed like a significant amount of the the people that were not there were due to academic issues. Yeah, that was the quote-unquote opt-out. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you had this season, which unfortunately, once we get to it, it I think it's going to be known as missing Josh Cephas mm-hmm. and what could have been if he was there. But really, it was all about the all of the injuries and all of the losses that led up to that. You know? Well, that too, and, and I would also, but I also want to add the fact that, you know, Trailer loses his dad. Right. We've talked about it or already but you know that this is just all culminates into it feels like adversity after adversity after adversity and at some point not that you're going to not have adversity and just be a clean team but i mean the reality is is that it seems like just under trailer we're going towards the end of the season and things just aren't all put together Mm -hmm. so hopefully it's a much happier bowl I, i would say bowl experience maybe next season we get to a bowl, you know, the season after that, stuff like that. Because, you know, I'd really like to see this team not have to hang its head on, oh, we're missing this guy, we're missing this coach. We're, mm-hmm. you know, there's got to be a little bit more continuity. Um, other than that, though, I think, to me, one of the key pieces of this whole game was just the fact that when you do say plays a, like, a ranked team or, you know, they're, they're playing an evenly matched team, it's not Conference USA. So in Conference USA... It's all about out athleting mm-hmm. each team, and, and it's clear. I mean, that's, that's how you go essentially seventeen and one over two seasons and get two conference titles. That's what UTSA did. But when you're playing some of these other teams, there's a lot more nuance. There's got to be that attention to detail. There's got to be that discipline. And you already mentioned it before. All of these things kind of caught up to UTSA, and I felt to me like that was part of the problem. What really prevented UTSA from essentially winning this game. Yeah. I mean, there was an article by, I think it was Mike Finger in the Express News where he talked about, you know, as UTSA gets to these bigger games, the margin of error gets narrower. And like you said, you know, the kind of glorious comeback from Frank Harris is harder to achieve because we can't allow ourselves to dig a hole. You know, we have to play a a more complete game, a clean game. And look, there were a lot of things that we did really, really well in this game. So I don't want to sound like, you know, we're just being super negative. But, you know, unfortunately, it amplifies the mistakes when you make them. And you don't have that kind of margin of error. Right. And I mean, that's really what it comes down to. If we're going to beat these ranked teams, if we're going to at least push to... 
you know, knock off, knock off a bull opponent. This is where it has to come through because mm-hmm. I, I just don't see a, a six and six UTSA team playing another six and six or seven and five team and being able to get an easy win in a bowl game. That's there's still a flaw I think with the UTSA team, and that means that you're still going to be flawed going into that game, and you're still going to have that kind of thin line of you know or the small margin of error. So, you know. I, I'm going to throw this out there to you because you kind of did the recap of the game, but I thought there was a key moment in this game that kind of flipped everything. As much Mm -hmm. as we've talked about already, the details or the attention to detail that's needed on UTSA's fourth drive, they're up 9-0. They have a third and two on the Troy 39. They're not able to complete that pass. Fourth and two. Trailer decides to punt. And you leaned over to me and said, he normally goes for it there. Yeah, it was kind of odd that all of a sudden we got conservative because at that point in the game, we had Troy on the ropes. And I wasn't sure why he didn't want to go for it there. And I kind of felt like by becoming conservative, and and, and again, I don't know everything that he takes into consideration when he makes those you know, fourth down decisions. I would love to dive deep into that. <laughs> I know, but I, I just felt like we got conservative and that wasn't the right decision at the time. And, you know, of course, if he had gone for it and not made it, we'd be sitting here saying, well, that wasn't the right decision at the time either. But it just wasn't very UTSA-like. And a lot of the game, I felt like we weren't playing our brand of football. We were playing Troy's brand of football, you know, much more defensive battle, not as much offense. And then, you know, for us to get conservative there, it just, I don't know, it felt odd. You're, you're going to laugh at me, but that was his Bill Clark moment to me. He had a flinch there. Yeah. And it was, and I get it. Look, what ends up happening is we punt, we essentially pin Troy deep, they don't they don't get a first down. They end up punting and then we end up settling for a field goal. A field goal. On the very next drive. You're not putting the team away. You're not Right. You're not in, imposing yourself on Troy. And I, I think that was just such a key moment. And, you know, there's obviously a ton of key moments throughout the game, but I just felt like that almost set the tone for we're going to play sort of a defensive game. We're mm-hmm. going to try to, like, Yeah, that's what I was saying. Counter, like we we but, kind of were playing... that. That's Troy style, though. Right, but that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. that's what I'm getting to, is that's not us. Yeah. And why did we get... Why did we do that? Like, I, I don't think either one of us can actually answer that question, but I wanted to at least bring it up, because I felt like... I felt like the two of us both looked at each other and I was of course you're over here asking we usually punt and I'm over here going sweep the leg just sweep the leg we usually go for enough yeah (laughs) but um you know it just it it just struck both of us at the time as really odd yeah and you know it's just something to call out I think so any other thoughts that you have overall from the game I mean of course aside before we get into each side of the ball you gotta talk about the officiating because that was you know obviously a big point of discussion on Twitter throughout the game. I mean, hey, we even had the mayor saying at halftime, UTSA 12, the ref 7. You can go back and forth. 
about officiating all you want, but there were a lot of penalties called on UTSA. There were not that many penalties called on Troy. I'm not 100% convinced personally that they didn't let some things go against Troy that they probably should have called, but it, it certainly felt like some of the calls were a little ticky-tacky. I mean, couldn't tell exactly what some of the unsportsmanlike conduct calls were, but, you know, we can talk more about that in the defense. But, I mean, we had a pre-snap unsportsmanlike conduct um, penalty, and then it it was just kind of... It was undisciplined, that's what it it was. It was undisciplined, but I also felt like it became undisciplined in part because of some of the the way that the refs called the game in the beginning. So it's interesting you bring this up because Jimmy Johnson actually had a nice quote about officiating uh, the other day. He said, I always told our team, you have to be good enough to overcome bad officiating because there's going to be poor officiating calls in every single game. And I thought that UTSA could rise above it because the defense was playing lights out, which mm-hmm. we'll get to pretty here shortly. But we just got in undisciplined and we really started arguing calls. And that was the problem was that some of these calls were 100% correct. You know, the pass interference call that I think you're mentioning here for the second quarter, Corey Mayfield did have his hand around the receiver. I mentioned it against North Texas. They were letting the secondary on both sides get very physical and tug on each other it catches up to you. You've got to be disciplined. You've got to be a little bit better about that. So that one was a good one. Nick Troy Fortune, I think, was called for holding. Once you look at the replay, it's holding. He's holding him. And then the Chapman one where, you know, it was like people were like, oh, that's an uncatchable pass. Well, you've got their tallest receiver, but you push him right at the goal line. (laughs) Like, that's pass interference. Like, if if it was JT Clark and he got pushed, would we have said, oh, no, that's an uncatchable pass? We would have said the difference. We would have just been different about it. So I, I get it. I think we all got caught up in it. I think the most controversial call was, honestly, Clifford Chapman's interception, which we'll talk about a little bit more. But I would say that one was because I'm not really sure that it was a complete catch. Mm-hmm. It was very close. When I saw it, I was like, even seeing it live, it looked it looked pretty close to a catch. And, you know, afterwards, you know, everybody's talking about Kalechi and how he didn't make a great effort. But Trailer said afterwards that Kalechi thought that there was, you know, there was a whistle. Or he mm-hmm. said it during half, like when he was interviewed before halftime. So there was something that was there. You know, we can go back and forth. But there were a lot of moments that I think just kind of led up to the fact that we just, we didn't do what we needed to do to win this game. We didn't keep our heads. And that's what I, that's why I wanted to set up this whole thing with. You've got to be much more disciplined. You've got to have that attention to detail. You know, against Houston, what happened? We had 12 players in the field. We had this big play that kind of that sunk the team, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So it's just those moments. I think that I get the officiating may have seemed bad, but that's also, this is the first time that we were essentially, I would say, on the ropes and potentially going to lose to an opponent. And I think the fans felt it and got defensive about it. I mean, otherwise... Would we have complained if it was the other way around? I don't. I would say no. So let's go to the special teams review. 
overall solid solid play, but they did give up a fake punt. Yeah, they did. I mean, they definitely were caught off guard by that. Um, you know, and, and part of that might have been, again, because you had Burke handling the calls, you know, on, as an offensive coordinator and different hands kind of in the, the special teams play. But it also may have been something that we just didn't see on film from Troy and weren't expecting as well. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what it could be. But I just wanted to bring it up because you can make a case that, as you said, because Justin Burke is calling offensive plays and Trailer just decided, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to criticize the fact that he didn't have a special teams coordinator. Yeah, I'm just saying time for that, that you do have to have someone that catches some of these things. Mm-hmm. And you, you had, I think, to me, plenty of time to review Troy special teams because um, they were on the field a lot in their games they don't have a very good offense so they certainly had opportunities to run fake punts and do stuff like that but you know one thing that you noticed um and it'll lead to something that i want to talk talk about a little bit more but is you know we saw Sackett kicked a field goal um you know and he handled kickoff duties didn't get to see tate sandell though yeah it was kind of odd i mean first of all tate sandell had only played in three games. So he still had a fourth game that he could have played. But also there was a waiver this year um, from the NCAA. And I don't know if this is just this year or if this has happened in the past that said, you know, the bowl games didn't count towards the red shirt. So, I mean, either way, I just expected that we were going to see him doing the kickoff duties um, to kind of keep, you know, sack it fresh to be able to, to kick field goals. Um, but I don't know, you know, really what the reason there was. Yeah, it was bizarre. And I felt like it began a theme of like the coaching staff, not playing a lot of these younger players as much as you want to get that bowl in. I'll throw this out there to you, but isn't this also a perfect time to also play some of these younger players? They're, they're there for the experience, but you're traveling with all these kids. Why not have some of them play and get them prepared to play? I get that it's a short time period, but you, you know, you can you can get these guys prepared. Is all is all I'm gonna say. Yeah, unless he just was thinking, okay, this is Sackett's last game, and I'm gonna let him, you know, have as much playing time as possible or something. I don't know. I just wanted to see you get a little crazy watching. I wanted the to see Tate Sandell do something crazy. <laughs> That's I wanted a, an onside kick. You know, I wanted some some theatrics. I know, and I know how crazy you get about it. That's why I teed this up for it. I know. But, um, but you know what we should tee up is the fact that Lucas Dean was Lucas Dean. I mean, he was absolutely on fire. His punts were amazing. And, you know, he was what we needed at the time. And, and he delivered on every single one of those punts. He was probably some of the the best defense we had as well. Yeah. Our defense played lights out, which we'll get to here in a second. But... Holy cow, like, they were aided by the fact that Lucas Dean was putting Troy in an even worse position than I think even they thought that they would be in. I know we're going to talk about the defense in a second, but just between special teams and defense and the fact that we were up 12-7 at halftime, I had texted a coworker of mine who is an Iowa Hawkeyes fan and said, I think I might have accidentally stumbled into an Iowa Hawkeyes game because we have a safety a field goal and only one touchdown, which, in fairness, the Hawkeyes would not have had the touchdown. But you know, and well, our defensive touchdown, maybe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and right now, like the MVP of the game seems to be our punter. Like, you know, it just really again, kind of creating that 
that environment where it just did not feel like a UTSA game. Yeah, and I think we should have seen some of that coming. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even in my preview, I talked about some of the stuff like, you know, with how bad the Troy offense was and how good that that Troy defense was. So let's go into talking about the UTSA defense first against this Troy offense. The keys to victory that I had to stop the run game to get Troy the Troy offense off the field. Well, if you take out the sacks, Troy rushed 30 times for 87 yards. That's less than three yards per car- right. carry. That's exactly what you want this defense to be. Um, and then the second key was pressuring Watson. <laughs> Six sacks. They forced two interceptions. Plenty of other tackles for loss in terms of, you know, just this entire offense. So, you know, Clifford Chapman extends his streak. Um, he's got he got yeah. an interception, but then, of course, he fumbled. We'll I mean, talk about it in a second. He, he probably didn't want that to be called an interception, but, yeah, he, he did extend his streak. He's now had an interception in five games in a row, which is just crazy, and I think the school record now. Yeah, he's just atop the UTSA school record. So congratulations, first of all, Clifford, because, I mean, that's amazing to be able to put yourself in that position. Um but then also your boy. Kalechi. I know, he made one mistake with the fumble, but he came up with the interception. So. Fantastic interception, first of all. And that's what I really wanted to focus on here. Look, I get that Clifford made a mistake and, you know, fumbled the ball. But, you know, he was trying to tuck the ball anyway. But where I want to go here is Kalechi essentially, I would say, out-jumping the receiver. Oh, yeah. To get that ball. And he was not letting the Troy receiver get that ball I just I was really impressed by how he made the play on that um in that in the game and you know I just wanted to at least give you another chance to say Kalechi <laughs> yeah I mean it, it was almost like with the defense though they had heard the narrative you know since the bowl game was announced about how great Troy's defense was and it's almost like they said okay challenge accepted because this was hands down, our best defensive performance. And it feels weird to say that because we lost the game. But it was a very impressive defensive performance by UTSA and something that, you know, certainly between defense and special teams, two parts of the triangle, absolutely there. Well, and I want to add to that is just, it, it's not just because Troy's offense is not very good. It's just that I think that this is the type of defense that we had kind of hope to see throughout the year right. against some more of these hapless offenses. Like, you know, you had a FIU team that wasn't very good yet, you know, really weren't able to bottle them up as much. You know, you had a middle Tennessee team that was eh and weren't able to bottle them up and a Texas Southern weren't able to bottle them up. You mm-hmm. know, it was, it was frustrating. And, you know, I had made our comments about, you know, Jess Lepp and wondering whether he should continue as defensive coordinator, but watch out look how awesome this defense can be. And, and, you know, that's that's the thing is that, you know, you kind of look at it and say, did they peak now? And mm-hmm. is this the defense we should have seen? Because, look, at one point in the broadcast, when we rewatched this game, Beth Mowens, who's one of the, who was the lead announcer, questioned whether Gunnar Watson should be benched for Jared Daigie. Our defense was essentially knocking out their, right. their quarterback without actually knocking him out. That's how poorly he had he had been playing and how poorly UTSA was making him look. You know, UTSA D forces that early 
early uh, snap in, you know, near the goal line, which led to that safety that we've already talked about. So it was the first safety since 2018 at Texas State. I thought there had been one since then. Mm-hmm. Totally wrong. But look, I mean, this you couldn't have asked more from this defense. You had Trey Moore stepping up and essentially just completely abusing that offensive line that Troy put out there. You might as well have just kind of had Trey Moore count essentially like five Mississippi like you did when you were playing like, you know, touch football as a kid because there really was nobody there to block him. Right. Um, he was, he really was that dominant and he's a redshirt freshman, right? Um, we allowed the fewest yards in a, essentially in a UTSA loss, 166. It depends on where you look. I think ESPN shows one number, but all yeah. the other NCAA game books show 166. I'm going with 166. Everything was great up until just it felt like near the end where it just we lost our cool. And I think that's part yeah. of the problem is Trailer wants these guys playing with an edge. He likes he's an emotional guy. They got emotional. And yeah. I, I think They got too emotional. There really needed to be a point where the defensive staff and trailer settled the guys down and said, Hey, forget about the officials, play right. your game. And Troy really, I think, kind of got into him by talking trash back and forth. But here's the deal. When you start doing the trash talking, man, well, you, you've you got to be able to counter. And that counter has to be within the play. It can't yeah. be just like going back and forth. And I think that that cost him at some point when you mentioned some of the stuff about, you know, there was some, you know, I think we got a unsportsmanlike before, uh, during the huddle, and then one during a timeout. Like, mm-hmm. that stuff has to be curbed. Yeah. Those are the types of things that we talked about earlier. If you're going to beat a ranked opponent, those are the mistakes you can't make. I'm not saying that all of this like led to necessarily that loss, but it certainly didn't help. Right. Absolutely. All right. Any other thoughts when it come, came to the defense? No, I think we covered everything. I mean, again, you know, it definitely was an impressive showing for them. You know, it's... Um, disappointing that we're going to talk about the offense and that we, you know, we didn't have the same type of performance there, but you know, all in all, I mean, I think, you know, they've got to be proud of what they did. Certainly, certainly they should be proud. And, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm able to pick a player of the game here, I would say obviously Trey Moore, it's an easy pick. I would also kind of point out Joe Evans, um, really did a great job on the line. Mm-hmm. I thought our defensive line really did a fantastic job, and it made Trey Moore's job easier, especially you know when he was coming off the edges to you know pressure Gunnar Watson. So you know if we were if you were to tell you, hey, this is the type of essentially game Lep is going to pitch in in the bowl game, you would have thought this would have been a win. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right, we will get to the offense. And um, keys to victory, I said utilize the tight ends in the passing game instead of pass blocking because that needs to put some pressure on the linebackers. Well, I didn't know that John Cephas was going to be out at the time I did it. Right. Um, so that played a part in into it. Um, but they were targeted nine times, and they caught six passes for 82 yards, most of that being Oscar Cardenas. Mm-hmm. Um, we did see more of Dan Dishman in this game than we've seen in the past, though. Yeah, and we'll get to that. It's, I think because of Cephas's absence, this is what uh, ends up occurring. But the second key to the victory I had was 
feed Kavorian. Well, 21 rushes for 133 yards. He was targeted three times, catching one pass for 12 yards. Lots to love about what you just saw from Kavorian, but this Troy defense was just obviously really good. You know, I talked about some of the things about, you know, what this Troy defense brought. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just didn't feel like they were unbeatable. No. Um, They reminded me of the 2000, like, Troy just in general reminded me of 2000 uh, Baltimore Ravens, where they had a very good defense and then a putrid offense that just happened to capitalize on what their defense did. The problem for UTSA's defense that I didn't mention was the fact that they just didn't cause enough turnovers. I thought they would cause more turnovers from Gunnar Watson. They didn't. So as dominant as it was, they weren't able to capitalize there. Well, our offense then had to have essentially more of a longer field. Mm -hmm. They did get some opportunities, but again, the execution wasn't there. But look, they couldn't stop defensive end, offensive or outside linebacker, whatever whatever you want to call him, Richard Jubiner. And then linebacker Carlton Marshall just... Those Troy defenders made their presence felt, as did their secondary. Their secondary, I thought, did a very good job on our receivers. And, you know, it just, it hampered what this offense wanted to do. Yeah, let's talk about Kavorian Barnes for a second, because um, two things that I really want the coaches to focus on with Kavorian over the offseason. One, first of all, someone needs to teach that kid how to hurdle someone. Because that <laughs> long run that he had... You know, he ends up getting stopped in the red zone. But I think if he would have hurdled that guy instead of, like, just kind of slamming into him or getting tripped up by him, you know, that probably would have been a touchdown. So we need to work on our hurdling skills. Um, and maybe Frank can help him out because we've all seen Frank hurdle, you know. Dan Dishman too, huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the second thing is that Kavorian has to understand that he is a runner He's not a tackler. So I feel like at times, like, he almost, like, seeks out a defender to, like, run into. Like, the kid likes to tackle. And he needs to learn how to, like, run around well, the spot. Yeah. He's very physical. But it's, like, sometimes, like, you're running away from the guys. You're not running into the guys. Like, like find the hole and run around him. Like, at some point, he gets, like, super excited and he just wants to, like, smack a defender. And Well, that was the problem in the long run was that all, what he really should have done was slow down and then... Cut. change yeah. yeah cut and change uh direction because that, that defender wasn't going fine too <laughs> it would have been spectacular but changing direction right there was was the move to was move to make because zakari was right there too and even if he had uh, defender had changed direction zakari was there to make a block in front of him not mm-hmm. like a block in the back so you know certainly things for Kavorian to learn because his vision needs to improve there. He can't always, as you said, seek the contact. He has got to be able to avoid and pop things to the outside. That'll make him a much better runner as well. Um, Let's talk real quick about Josh Cephas's absence in terms of how it affected the offense, not anything about what his absence is yet. Because he's not there, remember when we talked about Tate Sandell? Mm Mm-hmm said that, you know, Trailer and the coaching staff did not play many young players. You mentioned Chris Carpenter having a good game. I agree. Had a great game. The problem is, is that this team stayed in 12 personnel, or the offense stayed in 12 personnel the entire time. They really weren't putting in any other wide receivers, and that, mm-hmm. I think, hurt the offense, in my opinion, because 
it just felt like there just wasn't there wasn't opportunities to impose themselves on Troy's defense. Instead, mm-hmm. we kept showing two tight ends every single time with two or three receivers. And, you know... We didn't I, seem to have the same creativity at times in terms of play calling. We didn't. And I'm glad you said it that way because that's my main knock for Justin Burke. For as much as everybody's talked about, like, well, the play calling was fine. And, you know, honestly, it was fine. It's just that it felt like it got repetitive at times. And you can't do that against this type of defense. Troy, when they talked about... um the interception on the goal line uh, versus Frank, the defender said, oh, I had seen that play before in the drive previous to this one. And I knew that he was going to throw behind into the receiver behind me. So I just baited him into it, waited. And then I went and I made the interception. You can get away with it in conference USA because you're better athletes. And because Frank is such a threat there. Troy was not intimidated by Frank running, was not intimidated by, any of the athletes on UTSA's side of the ball, either side of the ball, you've got to be much more creative. You've got yeah. to come up with different ways. I and, mean, and, and even in the Conference USA game, you know, we talked about the fact that um, Parker, you know, his stats of war on Twitter had said, you know, UTSA has like five plays and they just keep playing them and playing them again. But usually it's like Novocaine, they just finally work. Well, again, you can do that in Conference USA. But when we get to the American Conference, when we get to, you know, a school like Troy that's ranked, we're going to have to do things a little bit differently. And we can't just keep, you know, showing the same looks because eventually they're going to figure it out. Yeah. And I thought as much as everybody talked about, oh, we started playing Troy's game. We fell into that trap easily because we kept, like I said, just showing the same personnel, bringing in and giving four wide receiver look. Mm -hmm. I get that this could be problems with the offensive line. But you had both Dishman and Cardenas going out on pass routes. So it wasn't all about the their defensive line bullying our offensive line. It really came down to me again. I think we'll just beat this to death is the lack of creativity, the lack of, I think, vision to come up with different ways to get these guys open. Mm-hmm. Yes, they made mistakes. Frank wasn't really on. You know, that was one of the other things. You know, there was... There was mistakes that he made, and I think he started pressing a lot mm-hmm. because of the fact that I think that they were... Troy saw what was coming, and they knew, and they were making some really good adjustments on that on the defense side of the ball. And so it forced Frank, to me, to throw into tighter windows or at least to bait him into throwing mm-hmm. tighter windows. We talked about last week about how you know he had a lower NFL grade. These are the types of things that... NFL scouts want to see from him. Can he make those throws, those tight window throws? He makes one for the touchdown pass, but then after that, it felt like he really started pressing stuff. And when he did, he started making mistakes, started staring receivers down like old Frank did. You know, he got away from what made him successful. And this offense we've talked about plenty of times, it's all based a lot about Frank. And so if Frank kind of struggles, the offense bogs down. Well, and then you couple that with, you know, guys like, Tyke and Carpenter who haven't had as much playing time throughout the season and they don't have, you know, even though Frank talks about his relationship with Tyke, they really haven't had an on-field connection as much as he's had with Cephas and with Clark. And so these are the moments where 
you know, perhaps if Clark was healthy, perhaps if Cephas was there, things might have just gone enough of our way because they may they may have been able to bail Frank out a couple of times where, you know, some of these other receivers weren't able to. But even somebody like Oscar Cardenas, you know, made a mistake. Like the Troy defenders were really going to strip the ball. And I don't think that that was something that our receivers acted like they were expecting. And so, you know, in some cases they were able to strip the ball out after you know, catches. Well, I mean, but I would also say that that's bad coaching because the coaching staff had to have seen that and known that. Look, it happens. Oscar wasn't trying to go down. He's not used to guys being able to stop him at that point. But you're playing a different type of defense and you should have seen that coming. Like, you got to protect the ball at all all costs. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to dog Oscar about this. And I really don't want to dog Frank or the rest of the offense on this. They played a really good defense that... I think shows them now, and I think they're going to have to press the coaching staff too to have more nuance to the way they approach the offensive sets and a little more detail. You can't just be going around saying, I've got five plays. Yeah. we Like you said, we joke about it, but if everybody else sees it, the better defenses know exactly how to stop it. Um, Anything else you want to talk about in terms of the offense? No, I think we covered it all. All right, well, if I have a player of the game to give out here, I think it goes easily to Kevorian Barnes. I thought, you know, look, I thought he had a good game. Um, you know, obviously the big run was the highlight of everything, but, you know, to have played just about every snap and to have to be essentially a workhorse against a tough defense. Mm-hmm. Look, North Texas is a good defense, but... And it only is really, set, what, second start, right? Yeah. I You know, putting him in that position, um, you know... We could go on and do talking more about like some of the things that Kavorian did right and you know where the offense kind of failed, but you know let's just leave it at the fact that Kavorian had a good game. He was really downtrodden after the game because he felt I think that he let the team down by not scoring that touchdown off the long run. But what it really comes down to is he's got a bright future and hopefully as long as he stays with UTSA, he's got a lot of more of these moments to uh, really create for UTSA fans. Absolutely. All right, before we go, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Okay. First of all, Monday night, we and pretty much everyone in the college football sports world saw a tweet from Trailer talking about, you know, NILs. And in my mind, it was sort of like a Twitter grenade being thrown by Trailer. Chaos you know, grenade. <laughs> yeah, he, he makes the statement, he tweets at the NCAA, you know, saying what he's already said in the past, which was these P5 programs are offering NIL deals to my players who aren't in the transfer portal, and basically what are you going to do about it? And this tweet goes viral. It gets picked up by just about everybody who covers college football. It was on Fox News. I mean, just becomes this gigantic story. And my first thought when we were reading this tweet was, Oh, Lord, you know, trailer's at home in Gilmer right now. He's had one too many Crown and Cokes. He's in his feelings and just fired off this tweet because, you know, he's not he's not really thinking about, you know, what the ramifications are. He's already, you know, like I said, he's already mentioned this before. But then, this morning, pull up Twitter and I see that the news is dropped on why Josh Cephas was not at the bowl game. 
you know, there was a lot of speculation about that before, but there's Greg Luca's article that says, you know, Josh had been involved in a car accident um, the day before the river rally or the morning before the river rally. He was suspected of being under the influence, hasn't been arrested, but has been suspended from team activities. And then that Twitter rant from trailer just sort of took on a whole different light to me because I thought, nope, what I thought before was him being in his feelings at home. Now to me seems like it's trailer creating a distraction so that people are picking up this story about the NIL and the P5 programs and are talking about that so that he's kind of burying the story about Josh Cephas. What are your thoughts? I would agree, because I think um, we both kind of said the same thing to each other this morning, was he essentially is saying, hey everybody, look at this big tree over here. Don't worry about, don't worry about this limousine that's passing by. Worry about what this big tree and somebody turns around and goes, hey, what's this limousine? Don't worry about that. Let's yeah. keep looking at the tree. So, look, I get what he was doing. I commend him for it. I mean, obviously, that's, as a coach, as a parent, you're going to want to distract from, you know, essentially the embarrassment for the kid. Mm-hmm. In this case, Josh Cephas. Now, I would say simply this, he was suspected of being under the influence, but he had a car accident first first and foremost nobody was hurt including him so that's obviously good to hear the under the influence part I mean we'll see what happens but honestly you said it once to me as we were having breakfast this morning it's like everybody's had sort of this moment in time when they were younger where they probably or even older where they've been having a little bit too much to drink and have taken the wheel maybe shouldn't have and, you know, we've all, I think, been or put ourselves in that type of scenario. We all, I would imagine, would say, no, we're not going to do this, yet we have done it. So, yeah. you know, for him, it's going to be a learning experience. Um, and hopefully next time, you know, if this happens, he he calls one of his teammates that hasn't been drinking. Or maybe calls even just calls first, trailer yeah. and says, coach, you know, I've been drinking and, you know, I need to... Yeah, I need a ride home. Let's be honest. How many of us wouldn't like get up and go, yeah, I'll go pick you up to save you from any kind of trouble that'll potentially come your way if something happens because of this. And hopefully his, his teammates learn from this experience and don't make the same mistake as well. But, you know, when you look at Josh, had the Twitter storm not happened with trailer, had just that story hit, and had it got picked up by the media outside of San Antonio, who don't know anything about Josh Cephas. They don't know his character the way that people in San Antonio do and you know those around the program. The story could have gotten spun a very different way. And so I think, again, in my mind, and, and this is all conjecture at this point because I don't know that for sure, but in my mind, I think that's part of the reason why trailer created this sort of Twitter storm, you know, to detract from that. And it's one more reason why these guys 
I think, love playing for Trailer because not many coaches would kind of take that bullet, if you will, for their for their kids in the way that Trailer would. Not media-wise. They would just show up and take care of the way that Trailer ended up, you know, taking care of this. But, you know, I, I, I will say this. It's going to be t- interesting to see, you know, just how this affects his... Uh, his vote into you know the triangle of toughness the the single, single digits, digits yeah. because um he was a 2-1-0 guy so does this does this affect that mm-hmm. i mean you know i think there's something to say that you would separate this incident from the football field you know i attended a practice and i saw his leadership you know with the wide receivers so i don't know that that really affects it but it would give you kind of you know, pause to whether, like, yeah. should we elect him? Because, you know, what if I get in trouble? Am I going to get the same, you know, the, yeah. the same kind of leeway? And honestly, you know, we'll get to know a lot more about his character as we see how he deals with this. Because, right. you know, those are the things that he's going, you know, he's going to have to learn to rebuild trust with his team and with Cooking the coaches. Stuff. Yeah. And, you know, again, we don't know what the the ultimate out, you know, outlook of the situation is going to be. I mean, he has not been arrested at this point, but that doesn't mean that he couldn't face charges later on. So it'll be interesting to, to follow that story in the off season. And, you know, again, certainly has been an interesting 24 hours in the uh, Roadrunner universe. Well, and I think what's tough for me is the fact that he was, we, early in the season, we talked about players that we have a soft spot for. Oh yeah, absolutely. Josh was my guy. And so, you know, it's, it is difficult to kind of see this, you know, transpire because, you know, I would have liked to have seen him, you know, finish out the season at, at the Cure Bowl. Whether he had a good game or not wouldn't have mattered to me. It would have just been, you know, he's there being part of the team. Um, but, you know, again, you know, ultimately you have consequences when you when you make you yeah. know, mistakes slash, you know, make errors in judgment. So And, and ultimately the... the... The good thing is, you know, like you said, he wasn't hurt in the accident, and he didn't hurt anyone else. Right. But, yeah, definitely more to come in the next couple of months on that story. Um, so moving on to basketball, um, update on the women's team. Tough loss to UAW, 53-56. to um, And then they followed that up with an overtime loss to Houston, 93-89. to <laughs> Unfortunately, they've now dropped to 2-7. and seven. Both of those games, again, you know, they fought to the very end, but still missing pieces that, you know, Coach Austin's going to have to work on with the team. Um, Conference play begins on December 29th against Louisiana Tech. So hopefully they've got a little bit of time to, you know, kind of work out those kinks because, you know, ultimately it only matters what you do in conference play. Yeah, and, you know, there was a lot of, I think, a lot of hope from UTSA fans, um, I think because of Coach Aston, that this team would just you know, be number you one. Have, <laughs> I think people were expecting to see a turnaround like they saw a trailer, but it's not the same scenario. Correct. This is much more of a build. And I think the problem is that trailer's presence and trailer's successes have put more pressure on all these other UTSA coaches mm-hmm. that... I think have a much more difficult job in terms of how they build their teams. Yeah. And, you know, someone that, that had really a, a lot of success was Coach Pittman, but he's been building this team for a few years now. Right. You know, Coach Aston needs some more time. Um, and really, 
I don't think anybody's impatient with her. It's just I think people are disappointed because I think they felt like it should be, like you said, wins right out of the gate. Right. But she's not a magician. <laughs> she's no, a great coach, but she's not a magician. Yeah, and, you know, if you look at this team compared to last year's team, you know, there are a lot of new girls on the team. I mean, even, you know, last year she brought in a lot of transfers and veterans, and this year she has a lot of freshmen. So, you know, what you're seeing now and how close they are to winning is going to pay off in future seasons. I think we were just hoping that it would be, you know, a couple more wins um, at this point. And I think there probably will be once we get into conference, but right now it's just... I think they're just, like I said, it's preseason and they're just still learning how to play with each other. Yeah. Um, on the men's team, they lost to Utah 70-91, to but they bounced back with a dominant performance against um, Bethune... Cookman. Bethune Cookman. <laughs> Sorry. I know I just butchered the name of that school, but they bounced back with a win against them 90-69. to um, And they end non-conference play at 6-5. and five. They will begin their conference play this week, December 22nd, um, at home against North Texas. Now, this is a team that I'm not sure how they're going to do in conference, honestly. It's been a, it, it's been what it felt like a sort of easier non-conference schedule it has turned out to kind of look now like, I don't know what this team is really like. I think they have some really good moments and they have some other just yeah, a little low moments. Yeah, so we'll see how they do, but you know, here's hoping that they that they turn it around too. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up for us here on the Hill Married podcast. I'm Atos, and I'm the Toves. We'll be back soon with our season recap and then to um, update on early signing period. Birds up. <laughs>